Take your Bible with me this morning, if you will, and find your place at the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can just listen. You'll be able to follow the story. It's a familiar story out of the Christmas story that I, I want to tell, tell you about today. Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. Follow along with me if you have a Bible there in front of you. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph in the babe, lying in a manger. Let's pray together. Father, these next few minutes we turn our attention to your word, specifically to the Christmas story that's found in Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help me today to communicate clearly. What we're going to talk about today is so very important, and I want to illustrate it in a way that I hope will be memorable, and that this might be a season when many of us lay down our fears and we lay down our anxieties at your feet. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This Christmas season, I've been trying to approach the Christmas messages in a little different way. Uh, trying to make it real to where we live on a daily basis. Uh, last week we talked about Mary, and though the child that was born to Mary was perfect, not everything about that first Christmas was perfect, right? Not everything about that first Christmas was perfect, and we have to stop thinking that Christmas has to be perfect. It has to be perfect in the sense of the son that was born, but the reality is there's going to be a lot of things that go on in our Christmas celebrations and things that happen during the Christmas season, and we have to take the spirit of Mary, and we just have to surrender ourselves and say, Lord, just use us. Lord, do with, with us what you would have to do with us. Well, today, we're going to be talking from the story of these shepherds, and we're going to be looking at an emotion, an emotion that these shepherds expressed that I think probably is an emotion that most of us express at one time or another. As a matter of fact, I know we express at one time or another. And it has to do with fear and anxiety, fear and anxiety. None of you are ever afraid. You know, the person who says, I'm not afraid of anything. Well, they're afraid of admitting that they're afraid of something. And that's the reality of the matter. But the fact is, we all have times of fear, and we have times when we are anxious. And did you know that the Christmas story speaks to this very matter, to the fears and the anxieties that we have in the course of living our lives? When you stop and you think about the Christmas story, one of the things that you'll be reminded of is that there are, there, there's a mention of fear on a number of occasions. For instance, when Zacharias was in the temple... And he was serving as a priest, and he was waiting, if you will, for uh, you know, the service that he had to render. The angel Gabriel appeared to him. And the Bible says that he was, what's the word, troubled. 
He was troubled. And what did the angel say in response? The angel says, don't be afraid. And so Zacharias, during the Christmas story, knew something about this matter of fear. Or, or think about Mary. We read that story last week, the, the story of Mary, where the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, Mary, you know, you're, you're the chosen one. God is going to use your womb to bring the Messiah into the world. This virgin Mary is going to bring the Messiah into the world. And when the angel appeared to her, it says she was what? Troubled. Again, it's the idea of fear. She was troubled. And what did the angel say to her? Don't be afraid. Or think about Joseph. After Mary had gone to visit with Elizabeth and then come, she came back to Nazareth, you know, she was obviously showing, it had been three months, she was obviously showing that she was pregnant. And um, so she, she was, uh, you know, visible that, that she was going to have a baby. And Joseph, now knowing that this woman to whom he's betrothed is going to have a baby that's not his, says, I'm, I'm going to put her away. I'm going to divorce her. And I'm going to do so quietly. I don't want to bring her any shame or any punishment. I just want to put her away. And the angel came. And the angel said to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. Don't be afraid. Why do you think he said don't be afraid? Because Mary had some fear, didn't he? I mean, excuse me, Joseph had some fear, didn't he? Now, you wouldn't tell somebody not to be afraid if they weren't afraid, right? Right? I mean, you wouldn't tell somebody, don't be afraid, if they didn't know that they had some fear. And so when you look at the story of Christmas, what you see is an emotion, fear, and anxiety in these different characters. And here you find it in the characters of the, the shepherds themselves. Now think about this for a moment. The shepherds were the ones who were watching outside, just outside of Bethlehem, the lambs and the sheep that were used for the sacrificial system in Jerusalem. So they had a very important job. These lambs had to be without spot, without blemish, so they had to be protected in a very specific way uh, because they were going to become the sacrificial lambs ultimately. And so their job was to take care of these lambs. They sometimes, I'm sure, were shepherds that went out to the fields and the various places and took them to pasture land to be able to graze and so forth. But on this occasion... They're here in, around Bethlehem, and they're watching these very special lambs that are going to be the sacrificial lambs. And something happens while they're outside, probably sleeping with one eye open. Don't you imagine? They had some kind of a sentinel system so that they were always watching. Somebody was always watching. Maybe they all were watching. One eye open at night, listening for any strange sounds, wondering, you know, what are these animals that are off in the distance? Make sure they don't get too close, or somebody come and steal any of these lambs. Suddenly, it says with these angels, with these shepherds, an angel appears. And it says that they were, they, they were greatly afraid. Notice the wording. Not just afraid, not just troubled. They were greatly afraid. Now, I've asked the question of myself. You know, why would it say they were greatly afraid? And I can only surmise about this. But I imagine that these shepherds were not as knowledgeable about the law and the prophets as Zacharias or maybe Joseph and Mary would have been. He, they might not have been as aware that God sometimes through angels visited his people. It didn't happen very often. When you read through the Bible, you find an angel delivering a message. It's very rare, it's very unique, and it's very special. God is doing something very special when an angel comes to deliver a message. But you don't see it very often. And these shepherds, they're often out, out traveling, watching after the sheep, living out in the fields, leading them to the water. You know, they, they weren't as familiar. As a matter of fact, they were considered the lower caste 
of society. They likely weren't as educated as some in their society. They were relatively poor. Uh, They were rugged, outdoors kinds of people. They smelled like the sheep because they spent all their time with the sheep. They were ceremonially unclean. They couldn't go to the temple, and they couldn't worship at the temple in the same way that others would go to the temple and worship uh, at the temple. So it's likely, at least possible, that they didn't know as much about angelic appearances. Now, as far as I know, I've never seen an angel other than my wife. As far as I know... You got to say those things every once in a while. As far as I know, I've never seen an angel, and likely you have never seen an angel. But I guarantee you, we we have some knowledge about what angels are. But but maybe these shepherds didn't have much knowledge. And suddenly there's this angel that appears. They're out here trying to protect these lambs, these sheep, from any kind of danger so that they're without spot and blemish. And this angel appears. And it says they are greatly afraid. I like the way one person said it. He said, in in the old King James, it says they were sore afraid. I mean, they were so afraid it hurt. (laughs) They were sore (laughs) afraid. That's how afraid they were at this very moment. And so, again, what we discover in the Christmas story is that the reality of fear. Now, normally when we think about Christmas, we think of joy or we think of love or some of these other wonderful emotions, but we often don't think about the emotion of fear. But here's the reality. Those shepherds were afraid. They were greatly afraid. And you and I, in the course of living out our lives, sometimes find ourselves having to deal with this emotion of fear, don't we? Sometimes this struggle that we have with anxiety, don't we? And you can imagine if you were sleeping out in a field somewhere and an angel appeared to you that maybe you had never heard about or seen before, never had an experience of, hadn't read anything or hadn't read much about, and suddenly an angel angel appears to you, I guarantee you, you'd be greatly afraid, right? And here are these men greatly afraid. They're experiencing something that you and I experience in the course of our lives. And we learn from this story how we deal with those fears and those anxieties. Did you know that fear, there's a science to fear? In your brain, there is something called the amygdala. The amygdala is sort of down toward the base of the brain, the bottom part of the brain. It's an area of the brain. Actually, there's two areas like this in either hemisphere of the brain. But it's called the amygdala. It's about the size of a walnut. That area is about the size of of a walnut in your brain. And it's that part of your brain that triggers emotions. And one of those emotions is the emotion of fear. And so when the amygdala goes off, it sends chemicals and it sends these signals to your body that makes you either want to fight or flee. Fight or flee. Now, if you're asking me, I prefer to flee (laughs) as opposed to fight. But it makes you either want to fight or flee. And you've been in a situation where there were stimuli around you that caused the amygdala of your brain to go off. Because the amygdala, listen, it's, it's, it's not objective. All it does is say there's, de- there's danger. Danger, 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 danger. I think, I've been wa- ro- I think I watched Lost in Space too much, didn't I? <laughs> Danger, danger, that's all it can do. It's the alarm system. 
When it comes to the matter of fear, it's the alarm system that goes off in your head. There's something around you that's happening that creates the alarm or causes the alarm to go off inside of your head. But you've got another part of the brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. And as you can imagine, it's right up here in the front of your brain. This is where reason, this is where logic, this is where decision-making takes place. So that when the, uh, the amygdala goes off and sends off the alarm of fear, then you're supposed to logically, reasonably stop and consider what's going on around you to determine whether or not you ought to be afraid or you need to be afraid or whether you can turn off the alarm because you're going to be okay. Now, you've seen these two parts of your brain working. You just didn't know it. You just didn't realize that's what was going on. The alarm system goes off. The prefrontal cortex here, uh, the free prefrontal cortex begins to, to reason and look around and think. And, you know, is, is, is there danger? What is? Is it really a danger to me? Uh, because you, you want to turn off that alarm if it's not a danger. Um, let me show you how, how they work together. Three, four years ago, Mary and I went to uh, Gatlinburg. We don't, we don't go to Gatlinburg very often. We like to go to Gatlinburg. But by the time we finish summer vacation... <laughs> That vacation fund is pretty well depleted. You know what I mean? You're the same way. You're not? Will you please tell me how you do it? By the time the nine of us uh, meet at the beach and we have our vacation together, I mean the vacation fund, but this particular year, three or four years ago, we had some funds. We went down to spend two or three days. It's in the warm weather. The sun's out. It's a pretty day. We're walking on the streets of Gatlinburg, exactly what I love to do. in and out of shops. You know, I got to make sure that I get, you know, the right thing. I don't have to buy anything. I just got to go look. It's just part of my nature. I just love doing it. And so we, we, we walk past this thing that's this like ski, a ski lift. This is not the enclosed thing that you ride over toward where the, the, the ski slopes are. This is an open ski lift looking thing. It's got a seat, got a back on it, and they put a bar down over you. And my angel of a wife said, let's ride that to the top of the mountain. Now, she knows, you might know, that one of my fears is heights. It's not so much heights, it's falling from those heights. <laughs> and I don't know if you're like this or if it's just me, when I get up into those very high heights, it's almost as if I can feel something pulling me over the edge. It feels like I'm being pulled over the edge. I don't, I don't like heights. And so, you know, automatically my amygdala goes off. Danger, 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 danger. And so the prefrontal cortex kicks in and it says, let's think about this for a minute. Let's reason for a moment. And so I begin reasoning. Am I going to flee or am I going to fight? I started off with fighting. I said, honey, look how expensive those tickets are. <laughs> I mean, the two of us together, that's a whole meal. That's, we're, we're out one whole meal. We won't have enough money to get gas to get home. That didn't work. You know, and I, I'm, I'm reasoning. I'm logically reasoning in my, this prefrontal cortex area, trying to turn off this alarm system. You know, and I'm looking. I said, oh, you know, they pulled the bar down. They make sure you're in there. Now, look, there, there goes a mother and her little daughter. She, wouldn't, she would never put her daughter in danger. 
never put her daughter in danger. Certainly a mother would never. Oh, there goes a, there goes a young couple. Looks like they're newlyweds. Look at the, they would never put each other in danger. And I'm, I'm reasoning. I'm trying to turn off the alarm. By the way, my alarm got beat into submission. And I got on that thing. Now, the problem isn't going up because you're pretty close to the ground going up. I mean, you can see the ground. You're looking at the ground while you go up this mountain. The problem is when you get to the top and you make the turn and you're coming down and you can't see the ground anymore and you feel like you're just suspended out there. That's the, this prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and they're working together. The alarm goes off. Danger, 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 danger. And then you start logically thinking, well, you know, this is really okay. It's safe. It's, it's going to be all right. I mean, this thing's been here forever. They've never lost anybody on the ride. And, of course, my reasoning says, well, you don't want to be the first either. <laughs> now you know what I'm talking about. That's the science of fear. And we all have to deal with it. Fear sees a threat, decides what to do, and then moves on. Fear sees a threat, decides what to do, and then moves on. But now there's another emotion that we have to deal with. Not just fear, there is anxiety. Now, anxiety is a little different than fear. While fear sees a threat, decides what to do, then moves on, anxiety imagines a threat and can't move on. It imagines a threat and can't move on. And the problem with anxiety is that if we allow the thoughts in this prefrontal cortex to linger, they put us in a constant state of fight or flight. This constant state of fight or flight. And we become anxious. Fear immediately goes off. You begin reasoning and thinking. And you can either reason yourself out of the fear or at least calm the fear. But anxiety, it only imagines a threat. And it gets stuck. Because the thoughts get stuck and you start thinking about, you know, this and that. Things that are just, they're not even real. They're not even actual. They're just possible. And anxiety kicks in. A lot of us understand anxiety. I'm with you. I've been anxious before. Neuroscientists tell us that what happens over time is that the emotional side of our brain, that's the amygdala, starts creating neurological pathways that make it harder and harder for the prefrontal cortex to kick in properly. And the result is that anxiety literally rewires our brains over time. You think it's a problem? Anxiety is the number one health issue among women and the number two health issue among men behind drugs and alcohol. And I would suggest to you that possibly, again, I'm just guessing, but possibly the reason why it comes behind drugs and alcohol is because they're trying to drown their anxiety. They're trying to escape from their anxiety. So you understand that some of the biggest battles we fight aren't those that are outside of us. It's those that are going on deep within us. And there's research that shows that anxiety in the U.S. is greater than in, 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 than in any other country. What? You mean that in a country where they're foraging for food, they don't have the animals to be able to have the nutrients and the things that are necessary for daily meals? You mean it's, it's in, a US, in the U.S. there's greater anxiety than, than where they're foraging for that food? That's what the study says. Can you believe it? 
Did you know that in the U.S. we are three times more likely to have anxiety than the generations before us? Three times more likely than the generation before us. And yet we have more and more of the things that we think are going to make us fulfilled and be satisfied. More and more of the things that are supposed to keep us safe. Hey, when I was a kid growing up, they didn't have seat belts in our cars. We didn't have car seats for sure. I can remember driving, uh, my daddy driving from uh, Atlanta, where we were born and raised, from Atlanta to Daytona. That's where we went every year for vacation, Daytona, uh, for, for vacation. That's why I still love the beach, I think. Um, but we, we, were, we were going to, to the beach, and now I've got two older, much older, considerably older sisters. And you got three of us in the back seat of this car. First of all, there's no air conditioning. The air conditioning is windows rolled down. There's no, so, there's no seat belt, so you're sliding on this seat. And can you imagine, you know, three kids in the back seat? Stop. You're on my side of the car. Don't touch me. Can you imagine? And sometimes my mother would say, Davey, get down on the floor. You get down on the floor. Cheryl, you move over there. Diane, you move over there. I played in the floor of the car. Sometimes I got treated so badly I got moved to the front seat. Not I, 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 did you get that? I got treated so badly. I got moved to the front seat. I can remember riding in the back of a truck. Now, not very often. I was a city boy. Mary grew up out in the country. She did this more than I did it. But you know, on occasion, I can remember as a, as a kid riding in the back of a truck on a big road, riding in the back of a truck. You can't do that anymore. We got seat belts. Hey, we got backup cameras. You know, if you get too close to a car, beep, 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 beep. It tells you you're too close to the car. We got cars that'll parallel park. Take that, DMV. <laughs> hmm? I mean, you could be driving down the road. Some cars, you drive down the road and you get too close to the lines and the steering wheel shakes because you're getting too close to the edge, right? You got, a, you got this assistive, uh, assistive uh, cruise control. We didn't have cruise control, by the way. Assistive cruise control so that if somebody you know, slows down in front of you, it automatically keeps you at the right distance. You don't have to worry about your foot on the gas pedal or on the, blur, on the brake. And yet, with all of the things that we have in the United States of America, we're three times more likely to have anxiety than the generations before us. Research shows that 31% of adults will experience an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. So that means one out of every three in this room will battle with an anxiety disorder at some time in the course of your life. And here's where it gets really serious. You know, I'm, I'm 62. And, you know, I've lived through my 40s and 50s and into my 60s. And, you know, maybe if I'm dealing with it, but should our kids have to deal with it? Did you know that 18 to 35-year-olds are gripped with anxiety? And what, what they say causes their anxiety is uncertainty about important decisions, 40% of them. Uncertainty about the future, 40% of them. Fear of failure, 40% of them. And the pressure to be successful, 36 of them. And some of that's just the period of life they're living in. I mean, they're at that point where they're pressing forward, trying to get ahead, trying to get a career going and so forth. But can you imagine 
how stifling it is for some of our younger adults and younger people who are struggling with this anxiety and these fears that just seem to overtake their lives. In Time Magazine, March the 19th, 2018, they had an article. I want to read you a couple of paragraphs from the article just to help you understand college students. College students. Not long after Nellie Spigner arrived at the University of Richmond in 2014 as a Division I soccer player and aspiring surgeon, college began to feel like a pressure cooker. Overwhelmed by her busy soccer schedule and heavy course load, she found herself fixating on how each grade would bring her closer to medical school. She says, I was running myself so thin trying to be the best college student, it almost seems like they were setting you up to fail because of the sheer amount of work and the amount of classes you have to take at the same time and how, you've, how you're also expected to do so much. The article continues. At, at first, Spigner hesitated to seek, any, to seek help at the university's counseling center, which was conspicuously located in the psychology building, separate from the health center. She says, no one wanted to be seen going up to that office. But she began to experience intense mood swings. At times, she found herself crying uncontrollably, unable to leave her room, only to feel normal again in 30 minutes. She started skipping classes and meals, avoiding friends and professors, and holding up in her dorm. In the spring of her freshman year, she saw a psychiatrist on campus who diagnosed her with bipolar disorder, and her symptoms worsened. The soccer team wouldn't allow her to play after she missed too many practice, so she left the team. In October of her sophomore year, she withdrew from school on medical leave, feeling defeated. When you're going through that and you're looking around on campus, it doesn't seem like anyone else is going through what you're going through, she says. It's probably the loneliest experience. So let's just stop there for a moment. You're not alone. If you battle with fear and anxiety, anxiety sometimes over things that aren't even real, you're not alone. One in three of us battle with that kind of anxiety. I've battled with it over the course of my life, over the 40 years or so, of 40 plus years or so of my ministry. I've been to the hospital three times because my heart was jumping out of my chest and it wasn't beating in rhythm and I think my heart's going to quit and I go to the emergency room and I get in and they put the electrode things on you and whatever that thing reads out to you and they look at you and they say, David, it's stress. And I got to pay this bill. (laughs) That's stress. Not to mention the six hours I waited for them to tell me it was stress. And now, which I don't go to the emergency room unless it's absolutely necessary. Now, if I go to the emergency room at my age with the same symptoms, they say, we're going to keep you overnight because, well, your age. We, we want to keep an eye on you. So what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying I understand. I do. I've had those panic attacks. I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And you are not alone. This study goes on to say between 2009 and 2015, the number of students visiting counseling centers increased by about 30% on average, while enrollment grew by less than 6%. That's Time Magazine. 
He finishes out here. It says, in spring 2017, nearly 40% of college students said they had felt so depressed in the prior year that it was difficult for them to function. And 61% of students said they had felt overwhelming anxiety in that same time period. Wow. The amygdala goes off. If it's fear... There is something that is there that is causing it. If it's anxiety, it's something that's perceived, but it's not even there, not even real. But you get stuck thinking about it, and before you know it, you become obsessed with it. And it moves from just a fear emotion to being an anxious emotion. And if you let it continue, it gets ingrained into you. And it becomes even more difficult. You can, but it becomes even more difficult to change the pattern of your thinking. Now, what does all that have to say about this Christmas story? Go back with me to Luke chapter 2. Now, I want you to listen. Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. That's the shepherds. Stood before the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. That would have been scary enough. And they were, what are the next two words? Greatly afraid. The amygdala went off. They're in their minds, their prefrontal cortex. We've never seen anything like this. What in the world is this? We've got to protect this sheep. What are we going to do? The flee or fight syndrome kicked in. Then the angel said to them, oh, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Can we just stop there for a moment? It's been said that there are 360 fear knots in the Bible, one for every day of the week, every day of the year. That's not an accurate statement. If you go through and you count the fear knots and the do not be afraid and the don't be anxious kind of passages, there's between 130 and 150 times that it says don't be afraid, fear not, don't be anxious. Between 130 and 150, and I leave a range between 130 and 150, because you might not put one or two of the verses in that I've put in. But do we really need it 365 times in the Bible for us to know? I mean, we got it 130 to 150 times. He says to us, do not be afraid. And he's speaking to these shepherds. He says, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. Now, see, you see what's going on? The do not be afraid is the desired effect. How is this going to be accomplished? How they're reasoning, they're rationalizing, they're rationing in their mind, they're, they're using logic in their heads. Why shouldn't we be afraid? Because there's good tidings, there's good news, there's great joy, and it's to all people. Do you see it? And then comes the announcement. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? By the way, that announcement was worthy of an angel, right? That announcement was worthy of an angel, right? That was something that was special. That was something that was unique. That was something that was once for all time. It was worthy of an angelic announcement. But in the midst of that announcement of good news and great joy to all people, 
Don't be afraid. The desired effect on you. Don't be afraid. Is this announcement unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I don't know if you see this or not, but I want to make sure you see it. That in this particular text of Scripture, if there's one thing that he's saying to us, he's telling us that Christ is the one who separates us from our fears and from our anxieties. Christ is the one who separates us from our fears and our anxieties. You say, how am I going to deal with this when my fear is out of control and my anxiety is out of control? Well, you're going to begin, you're going to begin, hear the word, you're going to begin by coming to Jesus and finding in Jesus the peace that he promises to give. You know, let me illustrate this for you if I can for just a few moments. A lot of you are familiar with Charles Schultz. Uh, you grew up reading the newspaper. Younger people don't read the newspaper as much as they used to, but you know that in the newspaper there's this comic strip that was written by Charles Schultz, the Peanuts comic strip. What you might know about, not know about Schultz is that he considered himself as a bland, boring kind of a person. And do you know who the alter ego is in uh, the, the Peanuts comic strip? Do you know who, who his alter ego is? It's Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown represents Charles Schultz in, in, the, in the cartoon. Uh, Schultz once told an interviewer that when he was in high school, he failed everything, that he was chronically lonely, that he had bit, bitter memories of his childhood in St. Paul, Minnesota, and that the bigger kids who pushed you down, this is his quote, who pushed you down and knocked you over and won't let you swing on the swings that you want to swing on. He was bullied. He was bullied. And so that plays itself out in the character of Charlie Brown. But what you might not know about Charlie Brown is that he converted to Christianity after a deployment in World War II. He certainly had feet of clay, and I don't mean to hold him up as a perfect example, but he, he was converted to Christ. He became a voracious reader of sacred literature. They, they say that his Bible, the margins of his Bible, were filled with handwritten notes. He was a Sunday school teacher at churches in the Midwest and out in California. And a lot of these peanut strips, these comic strips that were done by Charles Schultz made him a Christian pioneer. Charles Schultz, a Christian pioneer? Yeah. Long before it was popular, it was done, being done very often, he was putting in references to Scripture and to theological things and to spiritual things uh, in his comic strips. More than 560 of Schultz's nearly 17,800 Peanuts newspaper strips contain a religious, spiritual, or theological reference. And that was in a time, even though it was more Christian than the time we live in, was very highly unusual. Very unusual. Think of the impact that would have had. He was read by 355 million in, 25, in 21 languages across 75 countries. Can you imagine? But there's one particular thing that Charles Schultz did that stands out every Christmas because they play it every Christmas. And that's the Christmas story with Charlie Brown and all of the gang. How many of you have seen that Christmas story? Yeah, it's sort of one of the classics that everybody wants to see. And Charlie Brown in the story, he's really depressed. He's down. He's discouraged. He's unhappy. 
He can't seem to find any real meaning in Christmas. He's not excited about sending cards. At one point in the story, you know, there's a little psychiatrist booth. Five cents, you get, you get psychiatrist help. And I, if I remember right, Lucy's the psychiatrist. Is that right? But pays her five cents, and they go through all these phobias that he potentially could have. You got this phobia? No, I don't have that. You got this phobia? And then he ends up with, you got a phobia of phobias. Yeah, that's it. Charlie Brown isn't happy. They finally draft him, and they say, look, uh, we, what we want you to do, Charlie Brown, we want you to lead the Christmas play. Everybody's in it. Charlie Brown with his depressed tones and constant worries. Snoopy, who I love. If I get a dog to talk like that, I'd, 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 have, a, I'd have a Snoopy. <laughs> Snoopy with his flamboyant, daring view of life. Lucy with her crabby personality. Schroeder with his disciplined outlook and his piano skills. And then there is that one character... His name is Linus, and Linus has a blanket. Got his thumb in his mouth. He's got a blanket. He absolutely refuses to let go of the blanket. When they tell him people are making fun of you, do you realize how silly you look carrying that blanket? Put the blanket away. Put the blanket down. Linus refuses to put down that blanket. You remember that? refuses to put down that blanket. He refuses to drop the blanket. Well, uh, you know the story as it goes on. Ultimately, Charlie Brown gets frustrated with the whole thing. And he walks to the stage, walks past the piano on the stage, and he says, doesn't anybody know the real meaning of Christmas? And Linus, carrying his blanket with his thumb in his mouth, walks over and says, I know the real meaning of Christmas. And then he walks to center stage and he quotes from the passage of Scripture from the old King James. He quotes from the passage of Scripture that I read to you today. At the moment he says what? Fear not. Do not be afraid. He is separated from what? His security blanket. That which brings him calm in the midst of fears and anxieties Suddenly, as he's realizing this is the real meaning of Christmas, this is what it's all about, fear not, I can let go of all of these anxieties and all of these fears. Can, can I just take a moment and tell you that at least two of the reasons why we have so many anxieties and fears at the Christmas season, sometimes it's because we're trying to fill up with something that can never truly fulfill we think somehow that buying more gifts and spending more money and having more commercialism to our Christmas is somehow going to make us happy. It's going to bring us contentment. It's going to bring us fulfillment when the real fulfillment is in Jesus. Have you noticed this, at least when our kids were young? You know, we worked really hard to get the gifts, the few gifts that they really wanted on Christmas Day, and we'd get the gifts and they'd open up, especially when they were young. We'd get the gifts on Christmas Day, and they'd open them up, and they'd play with them for a little while, and before we knew it, they were playing with the boxes. They were playing with the boxes. The things that we thought were so important weren't nearly as important to them. And somehow, in the process of living out Christmas, we try to fill up with something that can never truly fulfill if we just get the next latest technology, if we get the next for our house, if we get the next clothing item, if we get the next whatever it may be. Somehow, we put our hopes 
in those things. And they leave us empty with fear and anxiety. This is the second reason why at Christmas we often fear, and that is because we're trying to hold on to something that's out of our control. If I can just keep this, if I can just keep my spouse here, if I can keep my children here, if I can just keep my bank account okay, if I can just get through the season and pay my bills, if I can just, if I can just hold on. Those things cause the amygdala to go off. Your prefrontal cortex begins to reason and think through, and it should shut down or at least quiet down that fear, but somehow it stays there. And the longer it stays there, it turns into creating ruts in your mind so that you end up living in those ruts, and anxiety begins to take over your life. Why? Because we're trying to fill up with something that can never fulfill, or we're trying to hold on to something that's out of our control. And we need to hear the angel say to us, need to hear the angel say to us, fear not. A Savior is born in Bethlehem. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, say, preacher, when he got through speaking, he reached over and picked up his blanket and he carried it away with him. And you'd be right. You know what, Linus is a lot like you and me, isn't he? For a moment, we let go of those fears. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus. We say we're going to trust him. We lay aside all these things that cause fear and anxiety in our lives. We say, Lord, we're going to just live at, the feet of you, at your feet, at the feet of Jesus. We're just going to live there. You know what? Two or three days later, you look in the mirror, and guess what's laying over your shoulder? You pick the blanket back up. And you're living with that blanket again. And you know, sometimes when it comes to conquering these fears and conquering these anxieties, you have to go through this process again and again and again and again until you learn to lay it there and to leave it there and to trust Jesus in the midst of whatever your circumstances are. And that's what Christmas says to us. The coming of the Christ child is, I want to separate you from your fears and your anxieties. And I want you to find in me your peace. A peace that passes all understanding. A peace that's not like the, the, the peace the world gives, Jesus said in the Gospel of John. I want to give you a peace that operates like a sentinel around your heart that guards you against those attacks that wants to steal and cause you to have fear things where you're trying to fulfill yourself with things that can never fulfill or things that you're trying to hold on to that you just need to turn loose of and say, Lord, it's in your hands. I can't control it. And we have to do it again and again and again and again because we have moments just like Linus. We pick up so often those fears and those anxieties over and over. If you go on through the movie, you know one of the things they do is uh, Charlie Brown and Linus go out to pick out a tree. When they get to the, the tree lot, it's all metal trees, aluminum trees. Matter of fact, he knocks on one of them, you hear the metal. Aluminum trees. You say, what in the world is an aluminum tree? <laughs> Can I tell you what an aluminum tree is? We used to have a lady in the church that had an aluminum tree. It, back in the 80s, 
And we'd been here a short time, and they would invite us over at Christmas time. She had more than just this aluminum tree, but this aluminum tree set up in the front window of her house. Mary will remember it, set up in the front window of her house. And then you had over here to the side, you had a little motor plugged into the wall, and then you had a big disc. And that disc turned real slowly. It had different colors, different color film in that disc. And so when it turned around, you were watching that, that silver tree. It was changing colors. I mean, people had those at one time. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> My amygdala just went off. Uh, maybe you have one now. <laughs> M- maybe you have one now. I'm not making fun of your tree. <laughs> but could we use it to, could we use the tenfold to cover our dishes after the, after the meal? He goes out, he's, he's looking for a tree. He can't find anything because to him, materialism, is all Christmas is materialism. It's turned into all material. It's all fake stuff. It's all the fake stuff. It's not the real stuff. The real stuff is the birth of Jesus Christ. That's where you get separated from your fears. And he finds this little twig. And he brings it back to the stage. They make fun of it. He ends up taking it out, back out to the field. He walks past Snoopy's house, and Snoopy has bought into all of the commercialism. His, his doghouse is all decorated up, lights and everything is all decorated up. And Snoopy puts the, the, the twig tree down. It's just nothing. By the way, the, tri, the, the, the twig tree, bear with me, represents Jesus. He's not any of that fake stuff. He wasn't beautiful or comely, Isaiah 53 says. He wasn't beautiful or comely, but he was real. He was real. And so he takes that tree out and he puts it down. He takes one of the decorations off of Snoopy's house and he puts it on the tree and the tree just sort of flops over like this and he goes into that depressed state again. Linus is watching all this happen. And Linus says, you know, this tree just needs some love. And Linus, for the last time in the movie, takes his security blanket that almost he would, he would never be separated from except in the moment when he realized the real meaning of Christmas. He takes a security blanket. Put the, put the picture up for me. If you, oh, there it is. He puts it around the base of the tree. He wraps it around the base of the tree. And all of the rest of the gang gather around. They start messing with the tree. And before you know it, you got this beautiful real tree with all the decorations and all the gangs gathered around. And rather than singing, oh, Christmas tree, that's playing in the background. Rather than singing, oh, Christmas tree, they break into Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn king. And Linus walks away without his blanket. Why? Because the coming of Jesus separates us from our fears it's the coming of jesus when jesus says to us don't be afraid when he wants us to drop the blanket and he wants us to experience the peace isn't that what he promised look at verse 14 chapter 2 verse 14 glory to god in the highest and on earth what peace 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 now there's two kinds of peace There's a peace with God. Every one of us needs peace with God. Before we're believers in Jesus, we are separated from God. We are alienated from God. We are sinners. But in Jesus Christ, 
We are made right with God, and we have peace with God. We're reconciled to God. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to God. And we're reconciled to God. That's peace with God. Can I say to you today, that's where your peace needs to begin. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know his forgiveness, you don't have the gift of eternal life, you don't have the certainty of living with God forever one day, it begins with you. This peace begins with you in Jesus by you inviting him to be your Savior. But then there's the peace of God. I don't have time to teach you this passage, but we'll do it at some other, other point. Philippians chapter 4. Listen to it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then he finishes, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's the frontal cortex, thinking the right things. Sometimes I'll teach you about the word calm, C-A-L-M, where the letters and acrostic out of those verses, an outline out of those verses, how to have that calm. But that's a peace that God promised. And you know where he promised it? He promised it in Bethlehem, in the person of the Christ child. You've probably seen some of these nativity scenes that are outdoor nativity scenes. They're, they're pretty cool. If we had a place to have one, had a yard area, you know, we, we might put one of those out because it's, it's sort of nice. Put the light on it and everybody can ride by. You know, the life size, the, the bigger ones, not those, not those little kind that are sitting on your mantle, but, you know, the, the bigger style that are outside. Well, there was a church that had one of those outdoor nativity scenes. And uh, after they, you know, one evening while everybody was gone, nobody was there, just the light shining on the nativity scene, there was a stray dog that happened by. The stray dog crawled into the manger with Jesus and went to sleep. Now, I'm, I'm thinking that Jesus is probably glad it's not a cat. <laughs> you agree? Now, if you're a cat person, my amygdala's going off again, you know. <gasps> We, we were cat people. We had cats. So I, I understand you cat people. We don't have them anymore, but we, we, had, we, we didn't do anything with them. They died on their own. <laughs> they died on their own. <clears throat> that picture to me says peace. That picture to me says peace. And where is that peace? It's at the feet of Jesus. That's where we come and we bring our fears. That's where we come and we bring our anxieties. And while there may be other things that are necessary for us to do to be able to relieve ourselves from the constant anxiety because it's not real, this is where you begin. You begin at the feet of Jesus. You know, we love the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Do you remember these words out of that song? The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight.
Jesus came to separate us from our fears and our anxieties, to give us peace with God and to give us the peace of God.